0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, I want to tell you about a podcast that's a new sponsor here for Deep State Radio. That we'd like to welcome aboard. It's called The Election Ride Home. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 o'clock Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor, Chris Higgins, will catch you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up, who's down, what issues are getting traction, what the polls are saying, what the latest developments are. It's a 15- it's a to 20-minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your browser 12 times a day, like I do, and that's an underestimate for me. I, I, I go too often to the browser, I think I may need some therapy to break out of that once Trump is out of office. It's like uh, TLDR as a service, for those of you who are not, you know, social media conversant, you know, that TLDR means too long. Uh, didn't read, and uh, the idea is to summarize what's going on quickly, but to give you what you need to know this election season. So, if you want to catch up on what you've missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. Thank you. Nine, twelve, Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I'm in New York City, just two blocks away from where a giant crowd is gathering to hear Elizabeth Warren speak, um, which gives us a sense that it's not only back-to-school time, but we're well into Campaign 2020, uh, the subject of uh, much of today's discussion. And for that, I am very fortunate to have with us Rosa Brooks. Hi, Rosa. Where are you today?
2: Hi, David. I'm I'm in Alexandria, Virginia. Have you abandoned Alexandria?
1: No, no. The, the worldwide headquarters of um, <laughs> the Markov Group and Deep State Radio is still in Alexandria, and I will be there this evening,
2: actually. Oh, my goodness. How exciting.
1: That's uh, uh, very exciting for me. Um, not for Alexandria. And as you could hear there in the background, we also have Evelyn Farkas, who has returned from far off places to back to the um, the the capital of the united states am i correct evelyn
3: that is correct i was in tbilisi georgia um just a scant few days ago
1: and the food and
3: actually i should confess also new york city
1: well that's not as exotic but the food in georgia is excellent correct delicious
3: i think i gained my mother seemed to think that i also she confirmed it looked like i gained (laughs) weight just 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 spending two days in georgia (laughs) <laughs>
1: Mother, mothers always say that sort of thing, by the way. They're the, they're the first mine to say... Us,
3: mine usually doesn't. So oh, that was
1: interesting. Well. Yeah. Um, and uh, and of course, Corey Shockey, who is in London, England, maybe? Where
0: exactly I? right, David.
1: Well, I, 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 well, I,
0: I have I, to tell you, I was uh, down in the south of England uh, late last week uh, talking to the Terrific British military folks who do cyber stuff. And they took me on a tour of the underground tunnels that were kind of where the British government would be spirited away in a nuclear apocalypse. And Air Vice Marshal Chris Moore, who runs the place and who is a deep state radio nerd, said... Wouldn't Rosa Brooks be envious of this silo? Oh yeah,
2: that's hilarious. It was fabulous.
1: Rosa Brooks known around the world for silo envy.
2: I I will say that one, one of the highlights of my time at the Pentagon was getting to visit the highly classified. Facility underneath a mountain where the Pentagon's top officials were supposed to take refuge in the event of a nuclear conflict.
0: Um, yes, yes.
2: <laughs> it was completely and utterly weird. Uh, and I loved it. I, I, I somebody needs to a book the last place.
0: That's right. The
2: survivors of the apocalypse are Rosa's voters. Yes, yep. Evelyn. Did you get to? Did you go there during your Pentagon time? Um,
3: so we had we we made a couple of attempts, and we had bad weather, and we were supposed to go by helicopter. So ultimately, I don't. I didn't go. Maybe someone went from my office. Um, it's it, yeah, it is an interesting facility
2: well, it, it did it did raise all sorts of uh... Silo technical issues that I do worry about after the apocalypse when we were touring and they kept showing us things like, you know, the underground reservoir and saying <laughs> things like, don't worry, everyone. We have completely redundant systems in here. Nothing can go wrong. And of course, I thought, boy, if this were a horror movie, this would be the point where the lights would go out. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I want to set a thriller inside this facility in which which... which everybody gets accidentally trapped there, and then it becomes like uh, Lord of the Flies.
1: Ooh, that's good. That's good. (laughs) I'm for that. I watched actually a bit of a documentary this weekend on the Doomsday Plane. You know, they have these four four 747s, which have been converted to be command centers where the president and all his advisors and military commanders, you know, could all be um, safe. Flying around in the sky in a hardened aircraft, and it just literally every 30 seconds, I thought, this is not going to work. They're, they're, they're not going to get to this plane, and if this, you know, so they'll shoot the plane down. I mean, you know, what, what are they joking? But um, uh, but we have four of them, and they cost, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars each. Well look you know this is this is the kind of conversation America should be having particularly as we get into an election year we spend we spend more money than any other country in the world on defense so that's interesting and 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 we have all sorts of potential for wars going on around the world including you know one even today apparently according to the news the president's waiting for you know the advice of of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia whether they want us to attack i, I didn't know he was <laughs> In the chain of command, but who, you know, right? <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and of course, you know, there's all sorts of other kinds of foreign policy issues out there. So one, you know, might think that this would be a subject for conversation, and yet we haven't heard much about it. Now, Rosa, you've been following this really closely. Um, well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so, why don't you give us a briefing on where the Democrats stand on foreign policy?
2: Oh, yes, um, it, absolutely right smack in the middle of nowhere, for the most part, is where they stand on foreign policy. Um, I was actually just uh, reading some of the summaries of the candidates' positions on foreign policy issues. Um, uh, in preparation for this call, and and the good news is that we no longer have you know 36 Democratic candidates running. I think we're yeah. you know down to 12 or 13 or something like that. Um, but by and large, really, really, to some extent, with the exception of of Joe Biden, uh, who whose foreign policy is. Much better known because he was vice president until two years ago, and who's no, and it's who, a very
1: up to date. I believe he's strongly in favor of the Maginot line.
2: Record players are very hip. <laughs> I just want, I just want to say that. But, but, but that's right. He's Biden, Brooklyn hip. Yeah. It, it's it it's really hard to even discern the actual positions of most of the Democratic candidates. Um, they say squishy things like, "Well, we really should." you know, reassert American leadership while bringing all troops home from everywhere, and we favor uh, international institutions and international law, and we support human rights, Uh, and it's extremely hard to pin them down on much of anything, which is kind of maddening, although it is entirely—I mean, I have, have, you know, a couple of theories on this, however— um, and obviously, the, what I'm saying doesn't doesn't apply equally to all candidates, and and you know certain candidates have staked staked out more detailed positions on one or two issues. And as I said, I think Biden, obviously, since he was vice president, has the most fully fleshed out uh, set of foreign policy views, which are obviously very very closely aligned with those of the Obama administration, for better or for worse. But but you know, one theory here is, and this is kind of, and both of these are actually sort of depressing theories. One theory is that most of the candidates just really don't know anything about foreign policy. And, and that's typical in presidential elections, you know, that by and large, people kind of cut their teeth as, as governors or, you know, mayors or whatever. And you don't, even the senators uh, don't have a ton of experience. So they're, they're just new to these issues and they don't have clear views because they don't have clear views yet, um, which is sort of, a little worrying if you're a foreign policy person. The other theory, which is also depressing, is that whether or not they have clear, well-thought through views, they don't want to articulate them because they're convinced that the American public uh, doesn't know, doesn't care, doesn't want to hear about it, and just wants to hear foreign policy platitudes about leadership, bringing troops home, you know, respecting human rights, making America prosperous, and and that there's just no, no benefit to getting more specific because all it will do is open you up to attack and you won't win anyone over because foreign policy just doesn't matter to voters.
1: Well, there's something to be said for that, Corey. Uh, Donald Trump didn't know anything about foreign policy uh, except what he learned at the Miss Universe pageant. Um, uh, uh, George W. Bush didn't know anything about Panama foreign... And
0: the Dominican Republic are outsized uh, yeah. important in this world. Yeah,
1: well, exactly. In <laughs> Moscow, he we went to Moscow. Uh, George W. Bush was governor of Texas, which admittedly has an international border, but he was certainly no foreign policy expert. Bill Clinton, uh, governor of Arkansas, no foreign policy expert. George H. W. Bush was an exception. Ronald Reagan didn't really know anything about foreign policy. Admittedly, Jimmy Carter had been in the Navy, but he was not exactly a foreign policy specialist, nor was Gerald Ford, although he'd been in Congress for a while. You know, we, we tend to favor the selection of presidents who don't know anything about foreign policy?
0: Um, I'm not sure I'd be that sweepingly encompassing, David, uh, because it seems to me there's a fourth theory I would add to Rosa's list, which is that um, there is such widespread belief that President Trump's foreign policy is actually um, making the world a more dangerous place and... Uh, almost pick something he's done and do the opposite, which means that the challengers to him don't really need to fight among themselves about whether to be dialed up to six and a half or seven and a half on China, uh, because that's not what's going to differentiate the field. I think Uh, primaries are about differentiating the field, and I think everybody, any potential candidate is gonna pick up a lot of low-hanging fruit by just pointing out the, the sand President Trump has thrown in the gears. Um, my, my sense about the American public's reaction on foreign policy issues is that uh, they, we typically uh, don't elect somebody who's a foreign policy expert unless we're really scared about what's going on in the world. So when we get really scared about it, um, then we tend to vet candidates more closely for it. But mostly, joyfully for our country, we have great neighbors and uh, a roaring economy that has a lot of impetus from its own domestic market. So, So we don't have to worry as much as others do. And that's a great blessing. And we should not Uh, kick a gift horse in the mouth in the way we are by being nasty to Canada and Mexico, because they're the difference between us having to care all the time about foreign policy and us having the luxury of only vetting candidates on foreign policy if something really big and dangerous feels like it's going on in the world.
1: Okay, well, that's, you know, that's a, a can't can't disagree with that. Although the president of the United States seems to disagree with it, um, but um, uh, uh, Evelyn, as we look at the, at the, at this this race, um, we're you know, I guess going through what we normally do, which is unless there is something big and urgent, um, foreign policy doesn't make it to the center of the equation um is there any as you look at it is there any way to make any foreign policy issue well, relevant I mean, on main I think
3: as a foreign policy wonk I have to stand up for all foreign policy issues being relevant and I guess the thing that stands out most to me is just the global assault on democracy and so you know including ours so we have to stand up because it's existential when it comes to Russia and their interest in meddling in our democratic system and specifically in our elections. We have to stand up to Russia when it comes to their unfair trade practices and also their efforts to thwart democracy and to spread their influence in ways that are, again, not competitive. So I I think those things hit home, they should hit home. Other than that, you know, for certain constituencies, for example, Venezuela matters more than for others, right? Or for Americans writ large, you can talk to them about bringing troops home, although I think that's kind of simplistic. And hopefully we're seeing the tide turning against that, uh, even with this president, to say, in the example of Afghanistan and Iraq, let's not leave until we've finished the job. And that may, that may mean that we stay as long as we are on the ground in other countries like in South Korea. So um, I think these, the issues, the, there are a lot of foreign policy issues that matter and or should matter to all of America. But most Americans are not aware, perhaps, even shockingly on the question of Russia. But then there are other ones that appeal to certain constituencies, as I mentioned, Venezuela one. Um, and there may be others that break down along ethnic, you know, hyphenated American lines.
2: I'm not okay. sure I would agree, though, Evelyn. That that any any certainly any of the Democratic candidates are backing away from the sort of bring the troops home language. Um, you know, it's what surprises me in a way um, was how willing they all were. In the last Democratic debate last week, to to rally around some version around of, of that language, where the only debate about Afghanistan was, do we bring absolutely everybody back, or do we just bring most of them back, and do we do it instantly, or do we do it over a slightly longer period of time? You know, and and I actually think that, you know, the one of the things that people interested in foreign policy from both parties really have to contend with both in this election cycle and, and beyond it, just, just more general, more generally is that the mood of the American public based on the various polls that have been done and not just, not just on the right and not just on the far left, but sort of across the board is extremely skeptical of US global interventions of all kinds both when it comes to sort of international economic policy and free trade. A lot of skepticism of that continues and that obviously buoyed both Trump and buoyed Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, There's a tremendous skepticism about military, anything that looks like military interventionism. Um, There was a really interesting uh, study that the Center for American Progress did a few months ago, and I think, in fact, at one point, we had Brian Katulis on this podcast to, to talk about that. But one of the a couple of the sort of really interesting findings of this study, and it was looking at, across partisan groups, across age groups, um, was, you know, number one, um, most Americans do not perceive the U.S., either under Trump or under Obama, as having any kind of coherent Foreign policy number two, the language that we and, and uh, you know all of us on this podcast, that, you know, and and many of our friends continue to use um, language like you know we need to fight authoritarianism or promote democracy or work with allies to support the international order. That that kind of language fell completely flat uh, with voters across age groups and partisan groups, um, and that people you know, tended to fall back on these very simplistic and, and, and I think very, you know, misleading uh, framings to make sense of foreign policy issues like, you know, do we look out for ourselves first or do we help others or should we be strong or should we be weak? Um, you know, and, and that's a huge challenge. You know, I mean, it suggests that the gap between the so-called expert community and the american people is is really really deep and and, and it, i think it speaks to a you know a collective failure on all of our part and on the part of our political leaders to you know find a way to talk about these issues that actually resonates and makes sense to people who are feeling a lot of anxiety a lot of cynicism and a lot of mistrust
1: well i think we but- dive in yeah.
2: Can I dive in on that?
0: Because I agree with Rosa. I especially agree with Rosa about our failure as elites to explain to my Uncle Eddie why American trade policy matters to him. And uh, But there is also um, a really strong movement in public attitudes on these issues right now as a reaction to President Trump's rhetoric and President Trump's policies, my favorite example of which, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs just came out with their annual poll of American attitudes. And the highest proportion of Americans ever in their polls have said that international trade is good for the U.S. economy. 87% of Americans responded that in this most recent poll. And Hmm. there is not a strong partisan skewing. Moreover, people actually think um, international trade is good for their well-being. And that's a huge difference from even three years ago, where I think there was a very strong uh, sense that there were winners and losers in the global economy, and and blue-collar workers in particular, or less educated workers, were the victims of global, the expansion of international finance and global trade. So I think that one in particular has moved uh, in ways that it surprises me that democratic, all of the 137 Democratic candidates for president, not a one of them, is on the leading edge of that attitude. They are all on the lagging end of that attitude. Um, most notably, Elizabeth Warren's trade policy, which David as a trade expert, I'd love to hear your reaction, too.
1: Right now? Well,
0: I've got, a reac-
1: I've got a reaction that you probably would be surprised by. I know, because when it came uh, out, um, uh, I surprised some other you know, folks like Dan Dresner and other commentators. Uh, I thought there was a lot good in her policy. I feel that one of the problems, one of the reasons we've had a hard time communicating uh, effectively why trade is relevant to everybody is that it's not. That for the most part, oh,
0: interesting.
1: the trade policies that we've been promoting have been policies that benefit big corporations and have a trickle-down benefit for everybody else. Uh, unless, of course, you're Donald Trump, and you get into a trade war with China, and then you lose 300,000 jobs, and it could be 900,000 jobs. Then people feel it, but but because um, we've taken labor standards out of it, we've taken environmental standards out of it, we've minimized some of the issues that are most relevant to most people. We don't communicate it. You know, we tend. I, I was trade official. We went out. And we'd go. Rising tide lifts all boats. So. Just a matter of time before your boat is rising. And you know, people go, okay. and 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 you know, it's it just didn't touch them. And somehow you've got to draw the line between this uh, world of trade and main Street. And uh, I think she was making an effort to do that by putting suggesting that we put labor representatives at the table, suggesting we put, Environmental representatives at the table. No, when I was in the Clinton administration, which was a billion years ago, dinosaurs roamed the earth, et cetera, et cetera. The same discussion was going on, and we were going shh, shh, shh. We don't need those people. We'll take care of it. Don't worry. Trust us. And (laughs) um, and and it didn't work out. You know, the the reality is that a lot of the trade deals that we did, while being sort of net net good top line deals, um didn't have any, you know, uh, components to them, some prep, uh, anticipation within them of the dislocations that would be caused. Uh, and having these other representatives involved is the best way to ensure that their perspectives and concerns are addressed. And perhaps we don't rush into deals unless we know how to deal with the dislocations they cause. So I'm still a free trader. I just would like to see... Trade that benefits everybody um, equally, and I don't think trade is—you know—I don't think it's supposed to be by for uh, buy and for corporations. I think it's supposed to be for the majority of the population. I think that's what she's going for. I support it. That was probably too long an answer.
0: No, that was actually really interesting, David, and in a persuasive case.
1: Uh, oh well, thank you. Um, uh, you know, one of the things, Evelyn, that strikes me as I listen to all of this is, you know, R- Rosa touched upon a couple of things that, you know, Democrats sort of say in passing we want more democracy, we want more human rights, we want uh, 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 less, you know, corruption in our foreign policy, you know, c- things that seem quite superficial. Um, but actually, in the context of this election, I don't know that those things are so superficial. Uh, this president seems to like dictators. He he doesn't seem to care about human rights. He seems to be giving dictators a bunch of uh, 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 advantages in the context of, of, of his foreign policy. And I think going out and making those points is going to make a very strong distinction between where the Democratic Party is and where Donald Trump is. But by the way, and I say this yeah. before, to Corey, I, I don't think Donald Trump is necessarily where the Republican Party is. Um, I, I, I think Donald Trump is in a place by himself.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think I think actually there's much more hay to be made over Donald Trump's way of conducting foreign policy and the fact that he likes to try to make transactional deals with strongmen you know, that he says he loves someone like Kim Jong-un. I mean, all you have to do is do, you know, a short little commercial showing what Kim Jong-un did to Otto Warmbier or, you know, showing the the camps, showing the testimony of North Koreans who have come and testified on the Hill about their treatment in these labor camps that Kim Jong-un has um, set up. Um, you can do, you can have Jamal Khashoggi's, you know, um, uh fiance, you know, talk about what happened to him. I mean, there, there, there really is an opportunity to highlight how morally bankrupt this president is. And based on that bankruptcy, what kind of alliances and friendships he's creating for us. And actually it's not just the disgusting dictators that he's cozying up to. I would also point out, you know, that this, uh, I don't even know what I would call it, slavish desire to help out Bibi Netanyahu is also something that's dangerous for America, dangerous for Israel, and um, reflects, again, his desire to just use personal personal contacts and make policy that's unwise just to benefit an ally politically. A case in point being, of course, Walking away from the two-state solution for uh, Israel and the Palestinians, and the Israelis and the Palestinians, and um, and and then taking some incremental steps that destroy the premise of the two-state solution: the moving of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, the supposed awarding of the Golan Heights to Israel. Uh, again, something that the United States cannot do unilaterally, but nevertheless, our president has decided and declared that he has done this. Um, the, the candidates who are opposing him right now, all of them are for a two-state solution. All of them recognize the danger and also the, um, the danger to a Jewish-Israeli state, the danger to Israel, the danger to... Uh, American standing, the danger of being dragged into a a bigger war, you know, one centered more on Israel. uh, And so they are wisely saying, let's go back to normal politics um, and let's go back to working through the international community and getting all of these decisions that are made or, you know, political agreements that are made sanctioned by the international community, which is safer for Israel Obviously, safer for the Palestinians, safer for the United States. So um, I think Donald Trump's foreign policy is, is dangerous, again, because he tries to um, curry favor with dictators, but also with other allies. And he does it in a way that creates more risk for the United States, more risk of war, more risk of all kinds of bad things. And, and in some cases, like with Kim Jong-un, where he's doing essentially nothing it increases the risk because Kim Jong-un is getting his way in building his nuclear stockpile.
1: So, Rosa, it, it sounds like if you're a Democrat and you say, I'm not Donald Trump, that's a pretty good foreign policy pitch.
2: Well, you know, it's better than Donald Trump, right? I mean, sure. Uh, but at the same time... Um, I mean, going back to Corey's earlier point, maybe maybe this is sort of naive, but I would like to see all of the Democratic candidates um, being leaders on this issue. You know, I, I I mean, to me, saying, "Hey, vote for me. I'm not Donald Trump." Number one, right this minute, they're not competing against Donald Trump. They're competing against one another. Um, you know, and and I. I I don't see how, you know, I think they have to differentiate themselves from one another, not just from Trump. I mean, any of them would be, you know, in my view, and I think in the view of 99% of Democrats, any of them would be better than Donald Trump. Um, so so it seems to me that they should have some incentive to talk more about foreign policy, if for no other reason than to differentiate themselves from one another. But I also, you know, as I said, I have some notion that it's their job in part to act like leaders and talk about their views, whether or not they think it's what's most likely to get them elected and try to talk about why this stuff matters and how it matters and how their foreign policies do fit in with their domestic policies or not, to point out where the tensions are. So maybe that's maybe that's naive. Um, um, but I, I, I wish we were seeing more of that from them than we have been seeing so far.
1: Yeah, me too. By the way, I'm not, I'm not minimizing it. I'm just saying um, that we can inadvertently have a foreign policy conversation. And by the way, Corey, that conversation could get more intense because we don't control events or. Uh, We are actually sort of fanning the flames of some events that could go out of control quickly. I mean, as we are recording this, um, you know, we're one, literally one small wrong decision from a major war in the Middle East. If, 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 If the United States follows through with what they're currently saying, which is, Iran attacked Saudi Arabia. That's a, and and the, the the Saudis say that's an act of war, and you listen to Lindsey Graham, who says, "We we should strike Iranian refineries." That's that could get ugly. So, path.
0: yes, it could, David. But I regret to inform you that you're at least 20 minutes behind the president's position, which is now not to sign a blank check to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but instead to suggest that it's time for a no preconditions meeting with the Iranian leaders. So um, uh, again,
2: President Trump like, seems... I can't keep up with this.
0: <laughs> I know, that's <laughs> exhausting. I would like to go back to politics being boring and our real lives uh, taking up more of our civic space.
1: Uh, I never, I have to tell you, I, as a matter of policy, never want to be closer than 20 minutes behind Donald Trump.
0: (laughs) But I feel like that's excellent. So uh, I actually have my money bet not on uh, war with Iran uh, siding with Saudi Arabia, but with President Trump committing at least the third egregious red line violation of seeming to commit the United States to a position, to a policy that requires the use of military force to uh, culminate. And instead, at the last minute, reversing himself. So you get the worst of both worlds. That is, uh, you get, uh, what was Theodore Roosevelt's great line about the most dangerous position to be is opulent, belligerent, and unarmed. Uh, The Trump administration parallel is gilded age, provocative, and unwilling to follow through on your threats Uh, because that makes the entire international order more unstable. It encourages your adversaries. It discourages your allies. uh, And on... Korea and on the previous suggestion that there would be military strikes on Iran, the president balked both times. And I, I honestly believe the president will balk at starting a war in the Middle East. I think he thinks he can talk tough and get away with it. But I think two and a half years into the administration, America's adversaries have his number. I do not believe... The Houthi or Iranians or uh, however this sifts out are actually believe President Trump will follow through with it, and that may be the most dangerous position at all.
1: At all. Well, I think there may have been a little glimmer of of recognition from Trump when he saw yesterday uh, oil futures going up, and he recognized perhaps, or somebody perhaps told him that many of the people that he likes and supports in that part of the world, um, and some people not in that part of the world, but who are his sponsors, would like nothing better than protracted instability because it'll push up the price of oil. The price of oil. Okay,
0: but the downside of that, uh, that that was very elegantly, that was an elegant understatement, David, about his sponsors. Um, And it's certainly true that... uh, that the Russians, the Saudis uh, like a high price for oil. But uh, if you think he understands enough economics to see the connection between the American economy doing well and his re-election prospects spiking the price of oil, uh, probably isn't that smart.
1: No, I, 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 I think so. Not and that I think- that's
0: what you were accusing him of, being smart. No.
1: I, no, I would never accuse him of being smart. In fact, I was saying the opposite, which is that I think he realizes that... He, that I think he's zeroed in on one thing. How does he get reelected? Because if he's not reelected, he's going to be prosecuted. And you know his world is going to come apart. And so it's existential for him to get reelected. And I think, you know, Evelyn, the rest of the world realizes that. And I think over the course of the next year, there'll be a lot of people who are gonna push him to the limits because it'll be a great time to get deals done.
3: Well, I mean, I I think to the extent that you have a president who's desperate to make any kind of deal to stay in office, certainly, uh, you know, you'll have a line out the door from all kinds of corrupt foreign powers who would like to make a deal with our president um, you know, to keep him in power and they would help him stay in power in exchange for getting X, Y, or Z. I mean, obviously for the Russians, the game has been to try to get sanctions removed. It hasn't worked, uh, but that doesn't mean that they won't try to help uh, our president get reelected in the same fashion or a similar fashion. And certainly other countries would be eager to line up to do so as well. Um so it, it is dangerous. It's dangerous, and, and it's so dangerous because the president has encouraged the rest of our government to ignore the foreign threats practically. And people like the majority leader of the of the Senate, you know, Senator McConnell, uh, refused to man the barricades against ongoing foreign interference. You know, which of course has earned him the nickname Moscow uh, Mitch. But you know it's not very funny and uh he should be doing everything he can in his power to protect the sanctity of our elections and make sure that every american citizen has the right to vote without having some russian or or for that matter iranian chinese you know north korean um you know bureaucrat behind the scenes manipulating their vote so um it's 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 highly disturbing, and there's and unfortunately there's a high degree of corruption that the president is now really encouraging in order to stay in power and um, you know p- put off the possibility, or the very real probability, I should say, as you said, David, of being prosecuted and seeing jail time for a whole host of things from campaign finance violations over the payments to Stormy Daniels and. Um, and uh, the other woman whose name I'm forgetting right now. Um, Second, of course, the use of the foundation that they had, which was closed. Um, uh, Well, there are a whole host of things that now, of course, the Manhattan DA and others are getting quite active on.
1: Um, Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's right. If you could pick one issue, Rosa, for the Democrats to zero in on, uh, that is a foreign policy or national security issue. What would it be?
2: Oh, that's a difficult one. Let um, hmm. me pass on that, if I may, and, and think about it and come back to it in a couple of minutes. If some or maybe if somebody else has a bright idea right off the top of their head.
1: Um, well, does anybody? Corey, do you have a bright idea? One <laughs> one issue. One issue to zero in on. I'll give you another question too, Corey, because I was going to pose a question to you, and that is, the other day that we were talking about Afghanistan in the Twitterverse and on TV and radio and stuff, and um, I made a comment that I thought that um, while it'd be good to be out of Afghanistan, you know, not on any terms. I think we need to think about what our long-term objectives are and determine, you know, who's in charge and how do we protect those objectives and. So on and so forth. That didn't seem like a radical concept to me. But um, and I got somebody came at me and said, "How dare you attack the president from the right?" Um, <laughs> um, you said. What? And, and haven't we learned anything yet? And and I realized that you know in some respects one of the problems here, aside from the idiocy of the comment, was one of the problems here is. We're we're missing a huge portion of the discussion because there are reasoned perspectives that would otherwise be made by some Republicans that once were made by John McCain or somebody, and, and we're not hearing those anymore.
0: I agree with you, David, on at least four counts um, in that set of comments. First, that we are, it is bad for our country to have young American men and women in harm's way without having a robust public argument about it ongoing. It, it makes me sad and I think it's genuinely dangerous um, for us not to be arguing, protesting, disagreeing strongly because the stakes are really high when we put our children at risk. Um, And we ought to care more than we apparently care on this. Second, that the people most to blame for this are the president of the United States and our elected political leaders, who, in this republic, we give our proxy to to um, make decisions on this, but also to guide and inform the public debate. And the president, the last three, four, five secretaries of defense have all been missing um, on a public discussion of this, and the secretaries of state as well, also the leadership of Congress, that, um, you know, having fighting forgotten wars really is a disservice to the people who are fighting those wars on our behalf. And so um, you know, I personally, think we actually should still be in Afghanistan, and the shift from combat as our principal function to supporting, uh, training, and backing up Afghan security forces, who since 2014 have taken over 45,000 casualties. That's about 20 a day. Um, And they're still willing to try and create the Afghanistan that we and they want. They fail on all sorts of fronts. They wouldn't need our help if they weren't failing on all sorts of fronts. Um, and so I personally think uh, that, that it's the right policy to be patient and to see this through to a conditions-based withdrawal. But, but a lot of people disagree, and it's actually really wrong that we're not having a big public up about this. The last thing I'll say, and then I promise I'll stop, is that the one issue uh, I would love to see people highlight is, uh, is are we going to rejoin the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership? Will the people who brought it into uh, being allow us to on terms we want? Are there adjustments we need to it to get congressional support? because President Obama was absolutely right to negotiate it. Uh, the Bush administration was absolutely right to come up with the idea. Neither of them pushed it to conclusions such that they could get it through Congress. And that, it really matters.
1: Yeah, that it, that it does. We only have a couple minutes um, left here. And amen. I, 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 I did, amen. That's what I like. One word answers. I, I you know, One thing strikes me, though, Evelyn, and that is, um, you know, uh, Corey brought up the TPP Six months ago If you had gone to any Democratic candidate They probably Directly or indirectly Would have said When I take office We will go back to the JCPOA um, With Iran But you know it's possible Trump could screw that up <laughs> He could not only pull out of it He could then offer terms That were substantially worse Than the terms Obama accept it, and make it almost impossible to go back to the JCPOA.
3: I think most of the candidates have said that they would like to do better than JCPOA. So I I don't think most of them are saying, let's just go back to JCPOA. At this point, they don't mind tacking on there, let's see if we can make it better.
1: So no, I, under, I understand, but, you know, we, for example, Trump is like, well, let's uh, lend him $15 billion, you know, yeah, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And, which is like not that, you know, Obama was just giving him back the money that was our money, right? Yeah.
3: Well, again, I think that this is why we have to shed light. Maybe this is another aspect. So I, I already talked at length about, you know, how he makes these transactional deals to prop up strong men and others who are friendly to him, you know, to Democrats to help them win at all costs, almost, you know, certainly at, at a cost and increased risk to the United States. OK, so there's that. There's the other thing, which is just sheer stupidity, which I hinted at with regard to North Korea, where we just pretend they're not a threat. And, you know, I suppose some kind of bad deal with Iran would be would fall into that category, you know, a deal where we somehow gave them more than we received or we didn't achieve our overall objective and in exchange they, you know, like snuck out from under our watch, if you will. So uh, when we're talking proliferation in particular, um, you know, so there are dangers with him of just a deal for the sake of a deal and not even caring about the content of the deal. And again, we've seen that unfortunately, you know, the place where we would expect the American people to have their interests um, represented in Congress, the members of Congress and the majority, certainly in the Senate, where you, where you still need the Senate to assent to treaties and foreign policy is still largely, more, the Senate has a lead on it. Um, there, you find the Republicans willing to cave, by and large, to this president on foreign policy, which is, um, I, I know that some people might argue with me about legislation and things that they've tried, but I don't feel the, the fervor there that you might have had if John McCain, for example, were still alive, you know? So it's, it, is, it is scary because our president can put us at greater risk in any number of ways, including bad deals.
1: Yeah, he can do it in, you know, in five minutes. He can do it in 30 seconds. I, you know, I, I sometimes follow Twitter while we're doing these conversations. And I'm thinking back on, on Corey's comment about my being 20 minutes behind Trump. And there was a tweet just moments ago while we're recording this episode uh, by my former colleague, John Hudson, who's now at The Washington Post. And this is Trump in one answer on Saudi Arabia. Which the question was, have you promised the Saudis the U.S. will protect them? In one answer, he says, "No, I haven't." The Saudis very want very want very much for us to protect them. It was an attack on Saudi <laughs> Arabia, not an attack on us, and we would certainly help them. They've been a great ally.
2: Hmm. <laughs> I'm sure the Saudis feel so, really good about that answer.
1: It, it's oh
2: like, yes!
0: It's like can an, I every add two? Can I add two punch lines onto the end of that? If yeah. you have not yet seen the Onion article, John Bolton asked to leave condo board meeting after repeatedly advocating bombing the Isaacsons. <laughs> 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 or uh, somebody on Twitter, a student at SAI, Sheikh Khatiri, uh, tweeted out that uh, it will be insult to injury if we go to war with Iran after Bolton has been fired.
1: <laughs> yeah, the <listing> knife, <laughs> That's a good one. The, involved, <laughs> the war he always wanted, he can Okay, so Rosa, this is the kind of friend I am. I've just like stretched and stretched and stretched. Uh-huh, I, and I owe I you an asked, answer. Like I was hoping you were just going to end the
2: podcast.
1: Yes, you're getting to end the podcast. One issue the Dems could focus on.
2: Well, okay. So the reason I was hesitating is 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 precisely that this is hard because I don't think it's a a single issue in the way we normally talk about foreign policy issues. You know, I don't think it's Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran or whatever. You know, um, or China. But I I do what I would really like to see the Democrats trying to do is is talk about. Talk about the world as, as a neighborhood that's shrinking in which we need to be good neighbors. And this cuts across a, a lot of different issues. And I was actually thinking nostalgically of the old Disney song, It's a Small World After All, that, that sort of the most important thing strikes me as not, not as being about Saudi Arabia or Yemen or, or any single issue, but about trying to reinvigorate in Americans a sense that this is a very fragile world in which no state can completely go it alone. And if we want to solve any of the scariest problems we're facing, whether it relates to climate change, whether it relates to global prosperity uh, and thus national prosperity, whether it relates to the you know continued na- danger posed by nuclear weapons, um, that these are not problems that we can solve by ourselves or w- that have a simple military solution or even a simple unilateral diplomatic solution and, and, and trying to find more vivid ways to convey that and talk about that. And it's something that I, I think younger people get more instinctively, that sense of interconnectedness. But I think that a lot of Americans really still don't, that they still, their, their sort of image of how the universe works is that America really could kind of close its doors and ignore the rest of the world and just focus, quote, unquote, on our problems and, and trying to combat that and say, yes, we, we, we absolutely owe it to the American people to focus on our problems, but there is no way to do that without working collaboratively with other countries around the world. And that's a, that's so, a hard one,
1: but, so, but so, I think so it's an important one. Let me take the most important point out of that. If I understand what you said, then that makes me a younger person. Is that I mean that's Is that would you say that's the case? If 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 I get it, then I'm younger. Is that correct, Rosa?
2: Yes. That it means that you're young at heart.
1: Oh, young at heart.
2: Oh,
0: Holy she's shit. lawyering you, David. It's not quite
2: the oh. same thing.
1: No, no. Young at heart is like, me, you know, call the undertaker. You're a dead. dumb. Dead. It's very. Dead. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: like dead.
1: That's, uh. It's very, it's very close to dead. Well, okay. Then I'm going to disagree with you. If you're going to go and attack me for, and be an ageist, how dare you be an ageist? Um, <laughs> uh, I, by, by the way, I find, I'm going to take 30 seconds here. I find the notion that you can't raise the issue of the age of a presidential candidate because it's, quote, ageist, ludicrous. If you're electing somebody to a job, then it is perfectly reasonable to ask, are they up for the job? Could they run for reelection for the job? You know, uh, you know, are, are there issues of fitness which enter into this thing because of their age? And the, the notion that certain candidates are beyond criticism because of you know the, the 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 kinds of critiques you might offer um are are declared out of bounds is crazy the other thing that i would say in my remaining 10 seconds is if i were asked what's the one thing the answer would be the president of the united states is the most serious national security threat we face and if you care about national security then you have to get rid of a president whose loyalties um, have repeatedly been demonstrated to be uh, towards himself and to foreign enemies of the United States. And in issue after issue after issue, whether it's national security clearances or uh, foreign policy or um, uh, 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 conflicts of interest or corruption, uh, he has proven to be a threat. And, and th- that one issue is the issue that I think Democrats should hammer home. But I'm just one guy living over a pizzeria somewhere in New York City. Um, I thank you very much, ladies, for joining uh, us here for this issue of Deep State Radio. Uh, we will have more coming this week, including a conversation uh, that I'm delighted we are able to have um, with a newly recovered General Mike Hayden. Uh, who is one of the best that the intelligence community has ever produced. Uh, and we will have a conversation on our regular Thursday show as well. So join us there. We're one year into the membership <laughs> options here at Deep State Radio. Uh, and we encourage you, if you go there now, uh, there are special discounts available uh, to commemorate this being one year. This is a great time to sign up Become a Deep State Radio listener. We've really been pleased to watch our audiences grow uh, substantially over the past couple of weeks, and we expect that to continue throughout the fall. be great if you could do, uh, help us with that by becoming a member. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Evelyn. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media.